when the, the Zoomer generation caught on to my book, Libido Dominandi, they staged something called No Fact November, which is a boycott of pornography. Rolling Stone, which is an oligarch magazine, uh, talks about rock and roll, immediately came out and denounced them as anti-Semites. Well, wait a minute. What's that got to? Oh, wait. Oh, you're letting the cat out of the bag here. Dr. E. Michael Jones, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. You run a website and a magazine called Culture Wars. What are the Culture Wars and how did you become involved in them? Culture Wars uh, came into existence as a term in America right around the time of the fall of communism. And it, it began pretty much with the takeover of literary criticism. There was this term called political correctness that started making the rounds. Uh, critical theory had been taken over by uh, deconstruction, the kind of French uh, nihilism, uh, Stanley Fish. It, it basically had been uh, destroyed. Tenured Radicals uh, was the book that came out around that time, and he talked about the takeover of academia. It was in many ways an inadequate book because it talked about Marxism when Marxism had, had failed, completely failed as an ideology. And uh, he couldn't name the term couldn't name the term, couldn't name what it was, largely because of ethnic taboo and so on and so forth, but uh, simply could not describe what was going on. I, I came across the term earlier uh, because I saw it as a translation of the German word Kulturkampf, which uh, was basically the struggle after the unification of Germany between the Prussian state and the Catholic Church. And I felt that this was a good explanation of what happened to the Catholic Church in the United States and America, because I started off uh, a magazine called Fidelity, and it was intra-Catholic. And after I did the biography of John Cardinal Crow of Philadelphia, I realized that's, that doesn't explain the story. There were ethnic groups outside of the Catholic Church who wanted to destroy it, and they found collaborators within the church. That was not the case in Prussia. Uh, during the Kulturkampf of the 1870s, but it was true in the United States of America. So uh, Kulturkampf was basically the struggle to control and destroy the Catholic Church. Uh, by So in order to understand that, you have to understand America. America is a country with three ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. The theory is called the triple melting pot. So no matter where you come from, after three generations, you're a Protestant, a Catholic, or a Jew, or you have no identity, or now we'd probably have to update it with uh, Islam. This was the antithesis to the racial theory. 1954 is a crucial turning point in American history because 1954 is the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus School Board, which makes race an official category of government policy. 54 was also the book, uh, the year that Will Herberg's book, Protestant Catholic Jew came out, just demonstrated the triple melting pot. So what you had here was uh, racial theory. Uh, now racial theory is the dominant uh, ideology in literary criticism, critical race theory. It conforms exactly to the triple melting pot because critical race theory is Jewish. Noel Ignatieff, they're all Jews. And uh, the, the battle in my, in literary criticism, was basically a Protestant Jewish battle. So the new criticism, which came into existence <clears throat> with Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, followed by Scrutiny, F.R. Levis, who really came to an understanding of the power of literature and how, how pedagogically appropriate literature is. It's really appropriate for young minds because it's concrete. The rise of that, and then it came to the 70s. And as I said, I had a front row seat where Stanley Fish, out of Jewish animus, basically attacked the new criticism and substituted a new type of criticism. He called it reader response criticism. But if you add in Derrida, it was basically Jewish literary criticism. It was Talmudic. So before it was sola scriptura, every man has a right to interpret the poem as he sees fit. Now it was Talmudic, but basically all you read were the rabbis. Stanley Fish was the rabbi. You never got to the Torah. All you read was the Talmudic interpretation of the Torah. That's what happened, and it led to the demise of literary criticism uh, as the 
culminate as the crucial battle in the culture wars. You don't often hear that narrative given with race being so central. How do you see the current state of affairs with critical race theory developing out of that? Well, race is a, a sign that you've lost identity. I just had a big debate with Jared Taylor, who has made a reputation for himself at the American Renaissance of promoting white racism or white identity, however you want to talk about it. What, what do we mean? Now, the debate was organized by a Norwegian by the name of Frodi Mitjord, who has something called the Scansa Forum. So I think Frodi, Jared has made a career out of this, and it's a dishonest career because he's basically running cover for the Jews. Okay, they are behind critical race theory. They are behind this racial polarization. They were behind Brown versus School Board. So I understand why you're doing it. You that's your job. But Frodi's a more interesting case because he's a Norwegian who was baptized as a Lutheran. And during this period of time, during his lifetime, the Lutheran Church evaporated in, in uh, Norway. It ceased to be the uh, uh, established church of Norway. And what happened here is that it evaporated all the Protestant countries around the same time. England, uh, England still has an established church, but it's a, it's a, a, a shell, a, a, a travesty. It was always a travesty of the Catholic Church, but now it's even more of a travesty. Scandinavia... It disappeared. And so what you had was people with an identity crisis because and, and, and they didn't know what they were. And suddenly they decided, well, I'm white. Well, when did Norwegians ever become white? I'll tell you when the English became white. The English became white in 1613 when they showed up in Virginia. And they had a, a slave population of chattel slaves from Africa and indentured slaves from uh, mostly Scotch-Irish Jacobite rebels, and they had to distinguish to divide the uh, work, divide the working class, so that they wouldn't unite and overthrow the, the planter class. That's when the English became white. It's a category of the mind which gets imposed on people for political purposes. That's what race is. That's all it's ever been. And the only thing that's changed over this period of time is that white went from good to being bad, and black went from bad to being good. So it's simply a reversal of the poles, but it's the same same dynamic. You mentioned the idea of control there and imposing categories to be able to manipulate people. You've also written a book on sexual liberation as a form of control. Now, how can porn work as a form of cultural warfare? Because it's a very powerful force in modern culture alongside these ideas about race. It's, it's a subset of the ethnic division that I talked about. So if you're talking about concretely uh, the rise of, of pornography uh, you in the 20th century, you have to talk about Hollywood and you have to talk about the Jews. The Jews were always behind pornography. Professor Abrams in the Je Jewish Quarterly, an English uh, professor, brags about it. He took my book, Libido Dominandi, just turned it upside down and instead, you know, yes, Jews are involved in pornography, but that's good. That's the, the ethnic dynamic of it. But from the, the psychological point of view, you're always talking about uh, the slavery of sin, which is what uh, St. Paul talked about. Uh, and St. Augustine said, a man has as many masters as he has vices. They knew that. Everyone knew that. This was the great contribution of Christianity to the classical world because Aristotle didn't know what slavery was. He never understood it. He thought that there were people who were slaves, fusei, which is by nature. There were certain people who were destined to be slaves and they had to work so that Aristotle could be a philosopher. And that was it. And then he would talk about, well, suppose there's a prince who's traveling across the Mediterranean and gets captured by pirates and turns into a, gal turned into a galley slave. What does that mean? Well, he didn't have an explanation. Augustine cleared the air. A man, you know, freedom is a function of your moral behavior. A man has as many masters as he has vices. That ruled Europe, not behavior because it's not that simple, but certainly ruled the intellectual life in Europe up till the French Revolution. And at this point, the Marquis de Sade simply took Augustine and turned it upside down. So if Augustine says, if you want to be free, be moral, uh, de Sade is saying, well, if you want to enslave people, promote vice. It's very simple. And so he said, we'll put... Uh, 
you know, display women naked in the theaters. This will arouse passion. Passion drives the revolution, and that will stop the Vendée and their attempt to overthrow the revolution. The next person who understood that was Wilhelm Reich, uh, about uh, over 100 years later, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. Reich is a Jew, a communist, and a psychiatrist who's trying to promote revolution in Austria, and he can't get people to listen about communism, but he always gets a big audience when he talks about sex. So he was the one who basically came up with, if you get uh, the, the, the opponent in Austria is the Catholic Church. So don't debate the existence of God with a priest or a seminarian. Get them involved in sexual activity. And that way, the idea of God will evaporate from their minds. Now, to get back to the Marquis de Sade, put the women naked in the theater. There's a technological problem here. If you have a really big theater, it's hard to see the women. If you have a, you can, you have a small theater, you can really see the women well, but you can only do it to a few people. This was solved by uh, the camera and then by the motion picture camera. And the group that took that over were the Jews in Hollywood. And at this point, you had the, the conflict. The Jews were using this as a form of control. Uh, so the, everyone's upset. Uh, I, I mean, everyone in America, they're upset because the Jews are corrupting the morals. The Protestants try there, they fail. And then the Catholics step up to the plate in 1933 and they beat the Jews at their own game. Basically, the Jews went into debt in Hollywood to finance talking pictures. 1929, they go into debt, and 1929, the stock market collapses. And now uh, people don't have money, and so they're vulnerable. The Catholic Church calls a boycott. Philadelphia, Cardinal Doherty in Philadelphia, shuts, boycotts the Warner Brothers theaters. They're losing $100,000 a week of real money in Philadelphia alone. That's going to spread to every big city, which is all dominated by Catholics at this point, Catholic ethnic groups. And so the Jews back down and the Institute, they accept the production code. And that rules the roost for 31 years in Hollywood. No nudity, no blasphemy, no ridiculing clergy and a lot of other weird stuff like don't put black and white people in the same frame because that will offend the South, people in the South. And then the Catholic Church lost its nerve with Vatican II. Nostra Tate said the Jews were now our friends. We had to pretend that they were our friends. And so the Jews come with a Hollywood porn film called uh, The Pawnbroker. And they break the code. And at that point, within seven years, we have hardcore pornography on the mainstream. And then the next biggest breakthrough is 1992, the Communications Decency Act, where you have pornography the uh, internet becoming the vehicle for pornography and the greatest dissemination of pornography in human history. Uh, and that led to 2019. I wrote uh, Libido Dominandi in the 1990s, 2000, about 25 years later, uh, the Zoomer generation discovers the idea that sexual liberation is a form of control. I don't have to convince them of that, they know it. They're all slaves to their passions. They're all addicted to their cell phones. And suddenly there was a protest movement and uh, that was crushed by, by the Jews. The ADL uh, had the counterattack calling anything they didn't like hate speech. And uh, that leads to, to the standoff that we're, we're in today. We go back to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. That's at the heart of the sexual revolution, isn't it, as well? Yes, but, but let's let's be perfectly honest here. Do you mean I have the right, uh, Chief Justice, I have the right? You mean little old me has the right? No, no, of course not. What you're saying is that the rich and powerful have the right to define it. And if you want to go along with them with your sexual perversions, that, that's fine. So what you're, what you're, what you have here is narcissism. It's playing to the narcissism of certain group, homosexuals or, or notorious narcissists, so that you have the illusion of power, but the reality of control. That is, that is the genius behind this decision. And that's precisely what happens when anyone acts on any type of principle of, of sexual liberation. You cannot liberate yourself from the moral law. That's impossible because the moral law is practical reason. 
if you liberate yourself from reason, uh, you're a slave because reason is the only thing that allows you to be free. This is the type of sleight of hand. Now, whether Kennedy knows that or whether he's just stupid and repeating something that people in those circles say is something I don't know, but it's clearly a cynical ploy that we all had to find out the hard way. Americans had to find out the hard way because, oh yeah, we have the right to define anything. I mean, we're like God, except uh, as soon as you say something the the, uh, the Google doesn't like, hey, you get the platform. Well, wait a minute. What about my right to define reality as it existed? Didn't, didn't, didn't Google get the memo here? The, the contradictions run deep there. As soon as you depart from reason, you become a slave. The intellect precedes the will. The two stand and fall together. It's the rational choice that makes it free. Whereas if you see liberty as just license to do whatever you want, rather than the freedom to pursue what is objectively good for you, then you reach those kind of dead ends. And yet people don't seem able to see it. There's a famous definition of the the eight daughters of lust in Aquinas. He defines lust as disordered sexual desire, and then explains that chief among its effects is a blindness of mind. So the more pleasure you take in a disordered desire, the less you are able to even see that it is disordered. He said at one point, you become like the lion. All the lion can see is the prey. You become so focused on your desire that that's it. Well, you know what happens when you do that? You run into a trap. It's easy to trap beasts because they are blinded and they're so focused that they don't see the big picture. I, I've, I've done a uh, podcast, a number of podcasts with a black guy from South Bend, Mario Sims, who was an exact, he tells, he tells me now that's exactly what happened to him. He was a, an aspiring, he was a mover and shaker in South Bend. He was going to challenge the Democratic Party to become mayor. He had a good chance, uh, but he was also sleeping with a lot of different women and he was blinded by lust. And guess what? He ran right into a trap and the politicians trapped him. They put him on trial. They sent him to prison for 13 years uh, because for a trumped up charge. And he ran into that trap because he was blinded by his lust. And he'll tell you that to himself today. And so he's in prison and he's saying, Lord, Lord, why did you do this to me? I was innocent. And then the Lord said, yeah, maybe of that. But you did a lot of other bad things. And you're going to sit here until uh, I let you go. And that's exactly what happened. You know, so it was an example of where God took evil and turned it into good and brought about the reform of Mario Sims. But he'll tell you to this day, it was a trap. And because you were blinded by lust, you didn't see it and you ran into it. In your book, Logos Rising, you call Foucault the paradigm of the anti-Logos tradition. I wonder if you could explain that comment in the light of that idea of St. Paul's that depravity and dishonesty are linked. Foucault uh, was baptized a Catholic. Uh, His father was a surgeon, a kind of brutal guy, made Foucault uh, uh, witness brutal operations that he shouldn't have seen as a young young boy. He was traumatized by this, became a homosexual, and then uh, got involved in left-wing politics at a time when the left uh, was running out of gas. Uh, the same thing that Reich complained about was true. Nobody, nobody's interested in the third thesis of the fourth international. Uh, communism is wearing down. We're talking about the 70s. And so Foucault decides, well, uh, there's a revolution in Iran. I'm going to Iran because this is what I've been waiting for. It's the sequel to 1968 in Paris. Well, no, it was the exact opposite. It was the exact opposite. It was the counter-revolution. And it was an in Islam being the scourge of God, imposing a tyrannical regime on the decadent West, the uh, West's toxification of Iran, completely missed it, okay? But, and so he starts talking about uh, the medical profession, punishment, that type of thing, and it resonates with people and gets hired at Berkeley. And he's he's in Berkeley in the 70s. Well, this is the, the high watermark of homosexual culture there in San Francisco. And he gets involved in the gay bathhouse scene and heavily involved. Uh, So here's a man. He can do anything he wants. And what's he want to do? He wants to be punished. He wants to be punished. And so he gets engaged in sadomasochism. 
But he was smart enough to realize that there was a transitional moment right here and that the left was switching away from economics to sex, that the new left was only interested in sex. And so he came up with what I call his pact with the devil. He said he made a pact with the devil when he went to Zabriskie Point in Death Valley. So this is an actual, actually based on part of his biography. But basically the pact is you give us unlimited sexual liberation and we won't ask for a raise. Oh, this is great. The oligarchs love it. The homosexuals love it. It's, it's a win-win situation. Who can argue with this? Well, anybody who's trying to raise a family might have a different point of view here. You know, wait a minute, I need a raise. <laughs> I'm not going to the bathhouse. I need a raise. Well, that was completely written out of the left. The left was completely corrupted. And that led to the situation we're in right now. Some people argue that ultimately porn, it's just free speech, isn't it? When did we lose the concept of obscenity and some things being beyond the law? Well, it began in the United States uh, after World War II. The Bernstein, the Bernstein case, uh, basically uh, uh, a Jew, Jewish film director, uh, pr- uh, a distributor in New York, bringing uh, an early Fellini film to New York City. Catholic Church is really strong politically, but it's really weak intellectually. That's the problem with the Catholic Church in America. It's always been the problem. These are children of immigrants, you know? So what you have after that is a series of Supreme Court cases that consistently erode the idea of obscenity. It's not part of free speech. No one ever said that dirty pictures were part of free speech, but that's what the Jews did over this period of time. So invariably you'd have a case and a Jew like Norman Mailer would show up and he'd say, oh, this is a great piece of art. Well, oh, it's uh, I am curious yellow or something like that. And it just battered it down to the point where it became the epitome of free speech. Wait a minute. It's not only not free speech. This is what free speech is. Freedom is the right to gratify your unruly sexual passions. Well, the problem here is deviance is constant. There's X amount of toleration. And if you cut off something at one end, you add it at the other. So the fact that you now tolerate pornography means that you do not tolerate speech about COVID and medicine. You've redefined it. And that's the situation we're in right now. That is the price you pay for your ability to watch pornography. Now you don't have free speech. Now you have the opposite of free speech. If we're thinking about free speech, the the traditional defense of it is that the pearl is formed by abrasion and free speech is important because discussion is important because it's a use of our rationality as part of a, a team, as part of a common humanity working towards the understanding of reality. So if you think about porn in those terms, it seems absurd that it could ever come under free speech protections because it's not fundamentally an inquiry. No, and it derails thought. That's the whole point of it. You yeah. start looking at it, the thought goes out the window. It's complete. You're completely derailed and you're a slave of your passions. That's why it's such an effective form of control. They know that. They know that. That's why you're flooded with pornography. But wait a minute, I can't talk about COVID? Oh, wait a minute, there's something wrong here. You know, uh, that's precisely, and it was the Jews, the ADL, which is the the, uh, the uh, SS of the Jewish Gestapo here, uh, who basically ruthlessly enforced this on the internet. You know, anything they don't like is hate speech. When I, uh, when the, the Zoomer generation caught on to my book, Libido Dominandi, they staged something called No Fap November, which is a boycott of pornography. Rolling Stone, which is an oligarch magazine, uh, talks about rock and roll, immediately came out and denounced them as anti-Semites. Well, wait a minute. What's that got to? Oh, wait. Oh, you're letting the cat out of the bag here when you talk about that, when you talk about it that way. That's the way. I'm sorry, but that's the way we have to deal with it. We are beyond uh, this this imaginary world of conservatism where we have uh, anonymous actors. The classic example of this was Archbishop Chaput, uh, Archbishop of Philadelphia, who wrote an article in First Things, which is a neocon magazine in which he said it was secular activists who destroyed school uh, pr- prayer in school. 
No, he said secularizing activists. Well, wait a minute. What's this? Can I look that up in the phone book? If we had a phone book, secularizing activists? No, it wasn't. It was Jews. It was the American Jewish Committee. Uh, the, the, the case took place in Philadelphia, right where Shapu was, uh, Shemp versus Abington School Board. And the lawyer was Leo Pfeffer, a Jewish lawyer who then wrote a memoir in which he said how much he hated Catholics. And it was published in a Catholic magazine. So it's this it's this ahistorical Thomism or this vague kind of conservatism, which talks about fictions like left and right, that is counterproductive. We have to be concrete and talk about who is doing it, why they're doing it and what we need to do to stop it. Earlier, you mentioned the idea of a counter revolution. And you said that the the Islamic revolution of 1979 was the Iranian version of the global sexual counter-revolution. And you give an example of that counter-revolution in that the film Alien was the sequel to Deep Throat. Now, what do you mean by that exactly? What form did this counter-revolution take? And has it gone far enough yet? Now, I, yes, Iran was a counter-revolution. If you want to look at the counterpart in Europe, it was Pope John Paul II. Uh, what, six months after the Ayatollah arrives in Tehran, Pope John Paul II celebrates mass in Warsaw, which leads to the fall of communism, which was materialism in the, uh, in the uh, Eastern uh, world, the Soviet world, the end of Soviet materialism, and the Ayatollah Khomeini was the end of American materialism in, in Tehran. Those are uh, conscious counter-revolutions. What you saw in Alien was an inchoate response to sexual liberation. It was in the way that art does things. You know, you can set, you can do things artistically that you simply can't understand intellectually. The whole history of art in Italy, for example, is a, I just finished a book on aesthetics. The whole history of art there is basically artists saying things that the philosophers couldn't say. All of art, History and criticism is based on Platonism, which is completely obsolete by the time of Giotto. But no one could articulate it. And so that's what Alien was, okay? Everyone at the end of the 70s, everyone had bad experiences. Like, I'm, I'm going to act, finally I can act on these impulses. Well, wait a minute, I got a venereal disease. Uh, wait a minute, I, 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 she got an abortion. Uh, you know, someone broke my heart. There's all this bad stuff. And suddenly someone finally can articulate it and say, basically, like in Halloween, which was one year before Alien, if you're a babysitter and you take off your blouse, somebody's going to jump out of the closet and kill you. And Alien was the same thing. Alien is specifically uh, a reference to Deep Throat. Deep Throat was the great porn film of 1973, celebrating oral sex. And it was lighthearted, you know, and now Alien comes along and says, oral sex will kill you. You engage in oral sex, your stomach will explode and a monster will come out and you'll never be able to get rid of that monster. Now I talked, it was a collaboration, Dan O'Bannon, uh, Ridley Scott and Hans Rudy Giger. Hans Rudi Giger was the Swiss guy who came up with the monster and they ripped it off and they stole that monster. Next 20 years, it was Giger's monster. I talked to Giger. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't understand what I just said. He just had this vision. He had a vision because his girlfriend committed suicide. I, I, said, I said to him, I said, look, there are all these dead babies in all your pictures. Did you procure an abortion? He said, no, I never did that. But we decided we were never going to have children. Well, I think, I mean, he's dead now. I can't ask him anymore. But I think his girlfriend, Lee Tobler, did have an abortion. And I think she was consumed with guilt. And I think that's why she he, she committed suicide. And he couldn't, couldn't figure it out. Because if you ask Giger if there's anything wrong with sexual liberation, he'd say, no, that's the whole culture. Of course, there's nothing wrong with it, except that I got a venereal disease, except that it broke my heart, except, well, wait a minute, you've got these two contradictory impulses that you can't resolve any other way than through art. And this is what I 
covered in my book, Monsters from the Id. So it began with Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, Dracula, Alien, three monsters based on three revolutions. This is like uh, Schopenhauer's idea that the artist is doing in concreto what the philosopher is doing in abstracto. Right. And what you're saying is that actually through art, it's able to be articulated even before the philosopher is fully conscious of it. Right, right. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying there were periods like Italy in the uh, beginning and with Giotto, where you were actually doing something that the philosophers could not explain. Even if you go up to Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson, in a sense, heroes in my life, because they helped me write my dissertation, they don't get it. They are complete. Their aesthetics is completely wrong. It's not Thomistic. It's Platonic. And neither of those guys understands what Aquinas actually did when he said existence is the form of essence. He completely revolutionized ontology when he did that. And these guys didn't even understand it. That shows you how powerful this platonic paradigm is and how the artist had to ignore it. And by ignoring it, they created something that the philosophers could not explain. Now, could you... Explain in a bit more detail why you think the Marquis de Sade said that for a revolution, you first need to put naked women in theatres. Because you mentioned uh, Wilhelm Reich in connection with him. And Reich's idea was that you needed to have some kind of mass situation. So enough people experiencing it at once. Isn't that to do with the power of art as well, but being misused? I'd say more media, more media, technology the means of technology rather than the art itself. Uh, the Marquis de Sade had a completely primitive psychology that was basically a plumbing psychology. That's what he believed. He believed that the transcendental you, uh, experience you had in sexuality with the orgasm could be explained simply by fluids moving through <laughs> tubes. That's that simple. He, he had read uh, De La Metri's book, L'homme machine, the man a machine. He was a complete materialist. Okay. And it, to that extent, uh, ev everything he said was, was based on a crude type of materialist ideology. And to that extent, it was wrong. It, it, it didn't work. But, you know, that didn't stop him from doing that. And, and uh, he, in a sense, unleashed the French Revolution. Because when they came to the Bastille, he cheered them on. For, well, the megaphone, he was up there cheering them on and they, they released him. And then that got released into the into the uh, atmosphere after that. So that was his contribution. Uh, the the tech, tech pornography is always a function of technology. It's always a function of technology. It's not art. It's an adjunct of technology. And what you saw over this period of time was the beginning. Uh, let's say the camera in the mid 19th century uh, in France, Daguerre, the daguerreotype, immediately being used as a vehicle for pornography. Same thing with the motion picture film. And the, the, the good thing uh, about uh, this was that it released art as the vehicle for pornography. So, I mean, the, the, the title of the book is The Dangers of Beauty the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. Uh, and the picture I'm going to use, I think, is Titian's Venus and the organ player, if you're familiar with this picture, because basically the organ player is, he's got one hand on the keyboard of the organ, which is the whole notion of logos and celestial harmony. But he's turning around, there's Venus naked lying back, and he's looking right at her crotch. This was the problem with mimesis at this point in Italian art. You got so realistic, you, you, you could succumb to your passions. Well, the, the camera eliminated all that. Once you got the camera, and but unfortunately, the camera also eliminated mimesis. And you had French Impressionism as an example, and that culminated in Picasso. You can argue something about French Impressionism, but by the time it got to Picasso, it's weaponized and it's an attack on everything that Western art stands for. So it's more technology, not mm -hmm. art. And now with the smartphone and the ready availability of 
high definition video in the pocket at all times, that technological potential has been unleashed in an unprecedented way. Absolutely. No, at no point in the history of the universe have we had this type of problem, simply because of technology. So So if you go back to Pompeii, you know, there are pornographic frescoes in Pompeii, but they're on the walls of whorehouses. And, uh, you know, well, it's not, it's maybe a state-of-the-art mimesis at that point, but it's not all that accurate. And so the potential for arousing the passions is diminished as a result. Now it's, especially every kid having one of these phones, every kid having access to pornography. This is a crime against humanity and someone should be held responsible for it, accountable for it. Marky Desaad said that he thought that sexual liberation would ultimately lead to violence. And that was the connection between the women in the theaters and the revolutionary uprising. If you look at the the research on porn, even if people think they're just starting off with mild stuff, it progresses to more and more violent forms that the brain becomes pulled in, addicted, and you need more of a stimulus each time. So before long, people find themselves looking at things that initially they would have found abhorrent. Right. Now, what do you think explains that logic? Why does it progress in that way? Why does sexual revolution, liberation, lead to violence inexorably. He described that. He's described the trajectory. He knew it pretty well. Um, the the um, natural passions, it's in the, the 120 days of Sodom. And the finalist, uh, it goes to violence and then murder. Why does is, why is, uh, liberation uh, or uh, destruction of sexual morality lead to murder? That's a good question. St. James said the same thing. Uh, Paul said the wages of sin is death. Uh, It leads to death in the soul, okay, which is what mortal sin is. You're kind of spiritually dead. And then that leads to a a greater and greater attraction to death in and of itself because you're drawn there. Uh, Plato would say that, uh, you know, the disordered soul needs disordered music. Well, the soul in death needs uh, death as a kind of uh, titillation to keep the keep the passions going, that's that's obvious. The trajectory of pornography is the same thing. Uh, this came out in the 1990s when Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, two feminists, said that pornography was violence against women. Well, they were right. They were right, and it was a good uh, attempt to redefine the whole anti-pornography uh, campaign in terms that were suitable to feminists. But uh, again, the ethnic card always trumps this type of thing. So Betty Friedan shows up and she basically says, no, it's not true. And I said, it's not true. And I'm the mother of feminism. So she, you should listen to me. Well, Betty Friedan's Jewish. Uh, Betty Goldstein was her maiden name. She was a member of the Communist Party. And she knew that Jews basically made a lot of money for pornography. So here you had ethnic interest trumping feminist ideology and that led to the collapse of the feminist case against pornography and that led to the communications decency act and that led to a a flood of pornography you can't understand this unless you deal with the ethnic realities here if freedom is about pursuing what is objectively good and being in harmony with with logos could you explain why you think that both luther and nietzsche shared a metaphor in their description of truth. Luther calling reason a whore and Nietzsche calling truth a woman. Why do you think the two of them in rejecting reason used that image? Luther started off as a nominalist, okay, which basically undermined the notion that the mind could get in contact with reality. He felt that all categories, all universals were categories of the mind. God was completely unknowable. And so therefore, reason was pointless. Reason was worthless. So all you could have was devotion. This was the great age of devotional literature, devotional art, uh, you know, the Ignatian retreat, all this type of stuff. I go into the art in uh, the book that I just mentioned, my latest book. Uh He also had personal reasons to do this because he violated reason personally, including practical reason, uh, when he uh, basically 
got married. He married Katalina from Bora, a nun. She's a nun. He's a priest. They both violated their vows. And that's when he came up with the doctrine of the enslaved will. That's the end of freedom. So look, if I, if I, uh, I'm, I'm not willing to accept the consequences of my own wicked actions. So therefore, I'm going to say there's no such thing as human freedom. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was a great achievement, wasn't it? And Nietzsche is the son of a Lutheran pastor. And the Lutherans never got over this antagonism uh, against reason, against Logos. It just got turned. And the crucial figure in between Luther and Nietzsche is Wagner. And the crucial artifact is Tristano de Zola. Uh, Wagner inherited the Logos tradition via Beethoven. Okay, he understood the power of Beethoven symphonies. He performed the Fifth Symphony in, in Dresden, got the entire crowd on his side, aristocrats and the, the uh, revolutionaries all were united because of Beethoven's power. That was basically the, the, the result of Bach's ability to write the, the well-tempered clavier to subdue emotion to the diatonic scale. Well, that's precisely what Wagner didn't like about it. If you want the conflict, uh, listen to Tannhäuser. So you have this strong diatonic melody, you know, ba, 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 ba. That's Christianity. And there are the pilgrims going to Rome. But then the other, and I can't hum the other part because it's, it's too chromatic. And you can never figure out a chromatic melody. Okay. And the battle is there. And eventually Christianity wins. But then he does Tristan and Isolde. And at that point, you abandon the great achievement of the West because you want to screw who you want to screw. Period. End of it. And so the great aria in Tristan and Isolde is Ozinkanida nach der Liebe. So extinguish the light of reason in the darkness of passion. Nietzsche was moved as a teenager when he heard Tristan and Isolde play the piano score and dedicated himself to the irrevocably by contracting syphilis, deliberately contracting syphilis. And that became his crusade against Logos, uh, an attack on Logos because of the passions. And Nietzsche is basically the the father of all of the modern uh, philosophies. If you're talking about Foucault, for example, those people, it's all will, will to power over Logos. And we are paying the price because your will to power uh, is not as strong as George Soros's will to power because he has billions of dollars and you do not. And that's what it all came down to. All those illusions came down to who had more money. Who could buy more politicians? And then the world just becomes a constant contest of vying power centers with no belief in truth whatsoever. That's right. And if you want to teach that uh, to the boys at Eaton, do Ulysses' speech in uh, Troilus and Cressida. Absolutely the greatest expression of that because Shakespeare understood it at that time because of the the, the, the Reformation in England, which was nothing more than a looting operation. And he could only say it whenever he talked about ancient Greece. Whenever he talks about ancient Greece, you know he's talking about England at the time of the Reformation. And, and so, you know, power, take what degree away, untune that string and hark what discord follows. Brilliant passage sums up exactly what you're saying here. You should teach it to every English school child. Yeah, there's talk about cancelling Shakespeare in some schools. This is English suicide, English cultural suicide. The great achievement of England is poetry. The great achievement in art is English poetry. It's on a level with German music and Italian painting. Arguably, poetry is the most intellectual of the arts because its medium words is the medium of thought itself. You get that combination of thought and feeling in a way that you might not in the plastic arts. So I think that's why literary criticism, to come back to one of your opening remarks, was hollowed out from the inside by this nihilistic approach. You're absolutely right. You've said that history is uh, an ascending spiral of rationality. Are we just at a dip right now? No, we're at a rising point. We're, it's rising all over the world. I mean, I just... 
I, I got you know, I was spouting off on some podcast about standing on the banks of the Ganges River in Mumbai. And this Indian writes to me, he says, wait a minute, the Ganges flows through Calcutta. <laughs> of course, I knew that. So I, I made this stupid statement. And because I made that stupid statement, I made contact with an Indian who is now reading my books and who is now understands that Logos is the best way to deal with the fact that India, you're raised in a culture where there are 33 million gods and your mother tells you that all paths are, are equal. This is anti-Logos. This is Logos rising in, in our day as we speak. We're talking about another moment, which is the collapse of the American empire. Okay, it's two sides of the same coin. Logos cannot rise effectively until the American empire falls. And as an example, I would give you what happened in the Soviet Union. The only reason we have an, an accurate understanding of what really happened in Germany after World War II is because those Soviet archives were opened after the fall of communism. That has not happened in the United States of America. Okay, now I don't, I don't want chaos. We saw that earlier, Antifa taking over streets, burning down buildings. The fall of an empire is, is not a pleasant thing to go through. Just ask St. Jerome what it was like to be when Rome fell. Okay, but there's no other way out of this. This evil institution has to go. Maybe we'll be lucky and it'll go Peaceably, it didn't go peaceably for England if you take World War One and World War II into account. But this is a transition transition that Americans have to make because we are the successors of the British Empire. Things might get worse before they get better. Get better and worse at the same time. And we have to have the eyes to see how they are getting better. Our conversation is a sign that Logos is rising. The internet is now conversations all over the world. Uh, but we have to have some type of vocabulary so that we can talk in a sophisticated fashion. And that's why I wrote Logos Rising. I think I can talk to anybody in the world about Logos. And I think I can say what I'm saying here is mandatory. This isn't just some type of uh, aspiration. It's mandatory because you're a rational creature. And the fact that we are talking to each other is a sign that rationality has this power. We just need to move this up to some type of higher level, you know, higher level of consciousness. So Logos is never, the upward spiral of Logos is never going to stop. It's going to continue because God is in charge of human history and God is Logos. That's simple. A lot of young people in schools at the moment are being taught about ethical porn and these kind of cultural forces feel very overwhelming. You mentioned Shakespeare earlier, and it reminded me of uh, Prospero's words to Ferdinand in The Tempest. The strongest oaths are straw to the fire in the blood. And I think that that idea of the fire in the blood is something that young people struggle with, especially the, the passions are strong. It's difficult to keep control of them, especially when, the culture around you just feels like a brothel, to put it bluntly. Right. Now, what advice would you give to people struggling with this? Because students have mentioned to me that they, they've been encouraged to watch porn, ethical porn. They know it's not good for them, but they find it hard to kick the habit. Anyone who tells you to watch porn is your enemy. First of all, you have to wake up to the fact that there are people in high positions of power who are your enemy, who want to enslave you. Okay, so that's what you have to deal with there. I, I said this in Poland, Libido Dominati was translated into Polish and I did a book tour. And I said, anyone who proposes uh, gay marriage, any politician, Polish politician is a traitor to the Polish people and should be treated as such. And uh, I think I was successful because gay marriage never got approved in Poland. And some guy wrote to me and said it was my book contributed to that. So it's very simple. You know you're enslaved, okay? Now, who's telling you that this is freedom? This person is your enemy, and you have to ignore what this person is saying and do uh, what you know is right in your heart. Every it, This is, in a sense, I don't have to make the case anymore. You know you're a slave of your passions. That's why, th that's the situation. 
the fact that the entire culture is trying to enslave you just shows you the magnitude of the problem, but it doesn't change the fact that it's a problem. On the bright side, there's the fact that people now have a genuine insight that they have desecrated something sacred. It's a bit like in the Divine Comedy when Dante and Virgil uh, ascend to heaven again, but only via Satan's backside. So yeah. right from the depths is where you can start to rebuild. Right. And that's what I think is going to happen. That's what's going to happen. There'll be a lot of collateral damage, but that's going to happen. Because if it doesn't happen, there will be no story. It'll be the end of the human race. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think it, sound, it feels like the end of the world. When the empire goes down, it always feels like the end of the world. That's what St. Jerome said. But then sooner or later, as, as Vico said, something new rises up, and that would be St. Benedict. Uh, and, and the monastery, you know, he, it's over. Uh, we can't go back to that. We have a new paradigm. And it's not that that wasn't fraught with struggle and violence. The monastery became the, the citadel against barbarian hordes. Uh, the barbar My barbarian German ancestors looting and pillaging as they crossed the Rhine and the Danube. It wasn't pleasant, but that's history. And, and as long as you know uh, the form of history, which I think we do know because of Christianity, this is a historical religion. We know uh, that it, there has to be a good outcome because God cannot write a tragedy. He's not going to write a tragedy. There'll be plenty of tragedies along the way, but that's not the big picture and that's not the big story. And that's the sign of meaning uh, that we should be conveying to our students. You should be conveying. I, I'm glad I'm not in academe was the, getting fired from my position was the best thing that ever happened to me. I wish you were still teaching English students, but that's not within our control. God has a plan and he doesn't need these little institutions anymore. Now that we have can talk to each other face to face. Dr. E. Michael Jones, thank you very much. Some inspiring words there. Where can people find out more about your work and your books? Go to fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. All my books are available there. Thank you very much. Thank you.